And my guest today is Dr. Gleb Sabursky. He's a cognitive psychologist. He will teach us a little bit about all of our cognitive distortions that I think is at the root cause of so many of the conflicts that we're dealing with today. In addition, he is the CEO of the Future of Work Consultancy, Disaster Avoidance Experts, specializing in helping leaders adopt a hybrid model to work. All the work from home initiatives have resulted in people sort of fighting to stay home or employers demanding people go back to work. And maybe there's a hybrid in between. We'll talk a little bit about that. But more importantly, I'm really interested in digging into so many of the distortions that are resulting in many of us having conflicts today and how to resolve conflict. I was uh, interviewing another guest earlier today on the Dr. Drew podcast talking about, well, we did it with Dave McCraney. We were talking about building relationships. We were talking about making contact. We were talking about being open and listening and getting rapport and not trying to demand that everyone adopt our opinions. We're going to get into that just after this little intro. Be right back. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Hey, everyone. And welcome. We appreciate you being here. I was just looking at the restream and somebody slapdash is saying had another seizure due to Wellbutrin. Uh, if you're having a medication due seizure, you should not be on said medication. Be sure to talk to your doctor about that. That is uh, anybody, anybody uh, having any unpleasant side effects from their medications should be immediately fighting to get something that does work and doesn't cause unpleasant side effects. Uh, that's the way it goes. Uh, he's back again, slap saying, I was told if I don't have any withdrawal symptoms after three days from alcohol, don't need benzos. Oh, well, you're having alcohol withdrawal seizures, not Wellbutrin related seizures. Uh, let's see. That is not necessarily true because the peak for seizure from alcohol withdrawal is about day three to five. And then there's another peak at two weeks. Uh, most people don't continue them for those two weeks, but I certainly wouldn't be driving a car for at least two weeks. All right, so let's leave that be, uh, and let's get on to the topic at hand. We're talking to Dr. Gleb Sabursky. Uh, let's put his new book up there, uh, Caleb. Uh, the new book, let's see if we can get that up there, is <clears throat> called Looking, excuse me, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams. Yeah, it's a little bit controversial these days where we should be working. It sounds like Elon Musk has strong feelings about being in the workplace. Maybe that's true with engineering teams. Maybe it's true with finance teams. I don't know. I don't know the answer to all these things. Uh, but I do know that our brain are, is put together in such a way that it has features, not even glitches. These are features of the brain that most people don't even seem to understand. And I want to get into a little bit of that first. So let's welcome our guest, Gleb Sabursky. Gleb, thanks for coming here. Thank you again for inviting me, Dr. Drew. And it's funny, you're mentioning David McCraney. He's a great person, one of my good friends. Actually wrote the foreword for my other book we talked about on your podcast earlier the blind spots between us how to overcome unconscious well, bias and build better relationships great guy there it is there it is well let's get to let's start on some of those blind spots i just we'll just start with that and then we'll get to the workplace after that so uh dave is is not really he's very fascinated by cognitive distortions uh, you know and uh 
and all the things that you have studied. Uh, but he he has decided, at least last time I spoke to him, at least his book now, which is How Minds Change, is about rapport and connection and contact and sort of collaborating with people. There's David Craney's book, rather than demanding that somebody, rather than argumentation and demanding that somebody adopt your point of view or your position. Uh, is that your sort of understanding of these things as well? Absolutely. So I have a methodology that I describe in my book, The Blind Spots Between Us, called EGRIP. Emotions, goals, rapport, information, positive reinforcement. And that's what you should do if you actually want to change somebody's mind. The typical approach is arguments. And of course, I'm sure David talked about how arguments don't work. If you want to look at the evolutionary psychology, I'm not sure if David went into this, arguments were actually evolved in the ancestral savannah environment, when we lived in small tribes of 50 to 150 people to help us build social status within the tribe and help us convince the tribe to do something. <laughs> so the people in right. that environment who were able to successfully convince their tribal members to pursue a certain course of action, those were the people who got social status and those were the people who were able to then take a, a path forward. There's a reason that so many of our politicians are lawyers, not scientists or psychologists mm. like us, unfortunately. So that is I, where yeah. the leaders come from, arguments. And those are not meant to change minds. Those are meant to mobilize people around you who are like-minded, like-minded, not change minds. So if you want to change minds, you need to use e-grip or other, some other techniques. But that's where let's start by talking about what arguments are and realizing that when you argue with someone, you're never trying to change the mind, no matter how much it feels to you like you are. You're just trying to browbeat them, and you're trying to get others on your side. You're trying to vanquish, trying to vanquish somebody. Right. That's right. And, you're trying to dominate and, them. That's and, what happens. Yeah. And so I've noticed these days the topic of, I, I'm amazed, I, I, sort of, I tend to gravitate towards, it's automatic with me. I, I gravitate to what I see as the sort of important phenomenon of our time. Like I was deep in the AIDS epidemic when that was going. I was, you know, obviously in drugs and alcohol when that was still going crazy. But lately I have found myself into this field of persuasion and contact and, um, you know, rapport building. It just feels like that's the, that's the problem of the day, of the hour, certainly. But persuasion in particular is something that I don't know, didn't know anything about and find myself mm -hmm. thinking a bit about these days. How is persuasion different from, I don't want to use, the argumentation isn't quite enough the right word, from, um, uh, I guess argumentation, argumentation is a, a better word right yes, now. Yeah, uh, yeah, right, exactly. So persuasion is actually meant to change somebody's mind. So e-grip I mentioned, that's a technique I developed to actually persuade people effectively, and there are other techniques. But let's go for this technique, and we can see how it's going to be very different from argumentation. And the first thing that in how it's different is that it starts with emotions. E is for emotions. And you want to focus on people's emotions because the reason that people are opposing you is fundamentally not rational logical. If we were rational and logical creatures, we would be convinced by facts and arguments would work. That is not what works. We're not convinced by facts. We're convinced by how we feel, not what we think. So you want, mm. if you want to persuade someone, if you want to get them to change your mind, you don't need to convince them with facts. You need to get them on your side. And for that, you need to tap into their emotions. So the first part of EGRIP, emotions, goals, rapport, information, positive reinforcement, is figuring out their emotions. 
And you need to do that by using techniques like empathy. So let's be very clear what empathy is and what empathy isn't. Empathy means understanding other people's emotions. It's not sympathy, which means caring about their emotions. You might or might not care about them, but you need empathy. Empathy meaning understanding how they feel. So that's very different. Be very clear. So you're going to use empathy to try to figure out how they feel. And you can do that through reading their tone of voice, their facial expression, what they're saying and what they're not saying. All of these things, we can dive deeper into that. So that's empathy. So you're figuring out what they're saying using active listening, empathetic listening, trying to figure out the emotional tones that are leading them to make whatever truth claims they're making. Then, so you move on from empathy to G, goals. You figure out what goals you share. Now, if you think about it, with anyone in your life, you know, even your worst enemy, you probably share about 80% of the goals. You want a happy life for yourself, right? You want generally people to be well off unless you're a psychotic maniac. <laughs> you want our country to go to a better place and you want people to be healthy and happy and have peaceful existence, right? So that's, those are broad things you can share. And you want to figure out on the specific issue at hand, the kind of things you share with someone. And I'll go for the example. Next, you build up rapport. So rapport in this case means showing the other person that you are on their side, that you care about their perspective, their point of view, their goals. Only four is where the I, information, is where you bring up information that might be potentially unpleasant for them. So here, after you've got on their side, you understand their emotions, you share goals, you bring up information. And finally, after they change their mind somewhat toward your perspective, you give them positive reinforcement for changing their mind and saying how tough it is to be. I'll give you an example. So I was at a dinner party, and I was talking to somebody who was very strongly supportive of raising the minimum wage to $18, not even $15, $18. So they were very much kind of on that left side, which said, you know, really want to raise the minimum wage. So I talked to them, I figured out their emotions, and they had an emotion of fairness and kind of anger at the you know, capitalist Wall Street, who he thought were usurping and exploiting the masses. So that's one. So I figured out the emotions. Then goals. I talked about, well, what are the goals that he's trying to reach? And we have a number of shared goals. We want everyone to be better off, especially I care about poor people. I want them to be better off. And people who are earning minimum wage, right? We want them to be better off. Then we got to rapport. And we talked about that. We talked about how poor people kind of get the shaft in this country, working at minimum wage, often not making, being able to make ends meet at that situation. So that's rapport. So we've gotten to rapport. He, he's feeling I'm on his side. I understand him. I understand where he's coming from. Then they talked about information. I pointed out there are a number of studies that show when the minimum wage goes up, many jobs are actually lost, whether to automation or to offshoring and to other causes. So there's, there are serious problems when minimum wage is raised too high. And there are good debates to be had about what's too high, but $18 in most cases right now, at least in our country, is going to be too high. And when I gave him some numbers on some studies about this, he saw where I'm coming from. He really hadn't thought about the job losses and how it's going to hurt poor people who are working on minimum wage to do that. And finally, once he realized that, okay, maybe $18 for all companies is going to be much, maybe Amazon should be paying $18, but not some smaller businesses out there. 
And so he agreed that, yes, maybe, you know, maybe a blanket $18 minimum wage is too much. And then I gave him positive reinforcement, saying, you know, it's tough to really change your mind because it doesn't feel good. It feels challenging for us to change your mind, but it's very admirable that you're able to do that. And that will help make sure that he, in the future, will be more open to changing his mind. So it's kind of a meta point, so that you not only on the object level itself, on minimum wage, but on the meta point itself, on changing your mind. So that's a way of using this e-grip technique to get people to change their minds and persuade them. Very, it's very interesting. Um, one of the things I've noticed that that has caused me to sort of shift to persuasion, that's not like a great technique, by the way. And I, it's, I was laughing to myself. I was thinking, um, I wonder if your accent makes it easier for him, them, you to persuade because you know what I mean? You're, you're not part, you're, you're necessarily not part of the American capitalist pig. You're, 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 a, you're a dispassionate European. You, you can see things that we can't see. So interesting to be these things that, that come to bear that we may not be aware of. Cause I have a feeling, you know, stupid American going at that guy would have gotten nowhere fast, but who knows? Maybe it's, it depends on how you approach be, it. Oh. I think you might be mistaken in that saying that kind of it's the stupid American. I mean, there's research showing that people with foreign accents are trusted less than people with mainstream American accents. So I don't think that the accent. I, I, but I think that where, where was that data from? Where, where did they collect that data? Was that just generally speaking or did they, were they yeah, look? Generally speaking for no, but because I've noticed, but listen, I've noticed that to be true on TV. I've not found mm -hmm. it to be true one-on-one. -on -one. You see what I'm saying? It's different where people, I don't know why, but I've noticed this very vividly that in, like British accents particularly just don't work on TV, yeah. but they're very much welcomed in, in a social setting and in persuade yeah, British, an individual setting. It's, accents, it's, it's very you're, weird. You're absolutely right. British accents are one of the few accents to which this doesn't apply. Mostly foreign accents uh. are going to be less trusted in individual interactions or group interactions interesting so i you're, don't think you're that, too uh, gleb you're too close to a russian accent that's the problem that's the, no, that's that's, 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 that's funny <laughs> i mean i'm ukrainian so ukrainian and moldova i know so, i know, you know i know same, that shows you how stupid I, 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 I said that with intention because i said that's how that's how dumb this is when we, when we have those biases to talk about your biases right. that's how dumb our biases are all right. And that's called well, let me finish this thought. Cognitive biases. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, what's it called? Say it again. The horns effect. So the horns effect is one of these cognitive biases where, again, relating that tribalism. I mean, a lot of these cognitive biases are coming from that ancestral savanna environment. So in that ancestral savanna environment, when you had a sign that somebody is not from your tribe, it was important to not trust them. And of course, having an accent right. is a good sign that somebody is not from your tribe. Right. Right. Ugh. And I think you and I have gone over the robber's cave study and all that kind of, there's all these famous social psychological studies out there that show how quickly humans get into these tribal positions. But we also quickly get into cooperative positions too, if we have a common goal and a common enemy. Mm -hmm. And we have to kind of really keep that in mind and find those things. I, I, the, the fact that we're further splintering rather than looking for those opportunities is sort of disturbing, disappointing to me. You're exactly right. And that's what I talk about in the second point of the e-grip technique, goals, shared common goals. And then the third point is rapport, building up rapport. So showing that person you understand their emotion and you share their goals. That is really critical if you want to connect with people and persuade them effectively. But I think one of the reasons I have been sort of um, preoccupied with persuasion is 
I'm encountering character pathology all over the place, character illness, mm. particularly cluster B character. And it's very difficult to manage people with these kinds of uh, character constructs and because you, you can't... Mm, you can't, I mean, I let's, well, you and I have not talked about this. Uh, so I feel like the Johnny Depp and, and Amber Heard did us all uh, a service by, by putting their conflicts publicly to show how messy relationships are. I don't think either, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I think they both had lots of pathology. Uh, and, but one of the things you saw on display was how people with borderline disorder distort. They distort, and then their memories are distorted and severely they're inaccurate. But then, of course, Mr. Depp is using drugs and alcohol, and that also distorts memories and distorts perception. And 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 so, so I guess what I'm getting at are there ways? The one of the more frustrating phenomenon I get into these days is is the distortions around character pathology. You're either mm. you're either suspect because whatever's going on in the person's victim mentality is projected onto you or you get um anger or manipulation or you have to be and I'm not talking about one particular style. I'm just saying well, these are the kinds of things you encounter. Or you have to perfectly mirror that person, the narcissist. You know, there's all these things that 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 people are now like are are almost requiring of other people in order to carry on a civil mm. conversation. D yeah. Does does understanding? I, my next question is going to be: Can your technique work in those settings? A and B. Do we have? Are there awarenesses of certain cognitive biases that can help us in those situations? Mm. Yes. So for folks who don't understand uh, character B characteristics of these personalities are people who are really pretty dramatic and unpredictable. <laughs> so that is the kind mm -hmm. of folks we're talking about here. And of course, these techniques can work with them as they can with other people when you get on their emotional wavelength. I think we really underestimate the role of emotions, and especially for people with those B personalities, having the emotions is going to be very important for them. So they're going to be more important than other people who have more of a logical and rational approach. You really want to be focusing, spending more time with them on their emotions and trying to understand and tune in to their emotions. If you want to persuade them, right? If you care about that, if you care about building and cultivating a relationship with this person, if you care about that, then you really want to be focusing on their emotions, not the logic, not the rationality, not the reason, and not what you feel. So here it's going to be tricky. And this is one of the most tricky things in this technique and more broadly uh, dealing with people is managing your own emotions. And that has, that's called mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, right? So emotional mm -hmm. intelligence is the skill area of being able to be aware of what you feel and then being able to manage what you feel. Conversely, social yeah. intelligence, eGrip is within the technique of social intelligence, which is being aware of what other people feel and being able to influence, manage their feelings, emotions, relationships. So emotional intelligence is where it starts. You need to understand how you feel, what you feel, before you really engage with other people. Well, and knowing yourself, and, and, of course, is one of the big yeah. battles in this world. <laughs> well, I, I want to drill in a little more on that because you're getting right into the territory that, that I'm worried about, which is mm. it's hard enough just to know who you are and what you're feeling, but when you get in and around Cluster B, 
you get sucked into their frame. You know, they, they, they have not great boundaries. Like, I, like I'm thinking about a narcissist, for instance. One of the, yes. the key ways dealing with a narcissist is to keep in mind what you're feeling. <laughs> keep your priorities, your thoughts, mm -hmm. your feelings in mind while you're dealing with that person. But yes. you may have to perfectly mirror what that person wants and provide them exactly what their needs and desires are or else you'll be completely rejected. So it depends what mm. your goals are with that person, I guess, right? Yep. You're absolutely right, yeah. uh, Dr. Drew. It's about understanding that person and separating that person yeah. from your emotions. We're talking about emotions, yeah. understanding hard. emotions. Hard. The crucial hard. thing to do, hard. Yeah, it is very hard. It is hard. Mm. And that's why I said at the beginning, you want to separate sympathy from empathy. Empathy means understanding yeah. that person. Sympathy means caring about them. And so you might not care about what they feel. You don't need to you don't need to experience the emotions that they do. What many people do and they make the mistake of, and they don't realize that they don't need to do this, is they try to mirror the other person's emotions in a way that they experience that person's emotions. That's not great. That's contagion. You don't want that's to be, no, that's yeah. con that's contagion. That's, that's contagion. Conti right, exactly. And, that's emotional contagion. Yeah. And you don't want that. Yeah. You want to separate no, it is, your emotions. The way, what I tell people is imagine you're trying to take care of a baby or a child and the child has some intense emotion and you have contagion yeah. and you're overcome by that emotion. Do, do you think that helps that kid? Mm. Do you think that child is now better because they've con you've caught the emotion that's making the child upset? No, now you both escalate into, nobody regulates, both escalate. Which again, back to the cluster B, if you're in with a histrionic or a borderline, you're going to the moon that way. Yeah, so a good way of addressing a child's temper tantrum is saying that, wow, that's a great temper tantrum. Come on, let it all out. So rather than <laughs> engaging and kind of you know, escalating the temper tantrum, and that's the same way you want to engage with someone with cluster B personality. Kind of if they're angry, say, yeah, you have a right to be angry without getting angry yourself. Let them get the anger out. Right. Let them get you know whatever drama they have out without becoming mm. angry yourself. That's a nice thing. You can reinforce the other person's emotions without mirroring them exactly. You can say that you have the right I, yeah. and the validity to have those emotions. And but they'll hear that and they'll be, oh, yes, you support my emotions. You don't need to feel those emotions. You need to express that I, I, you are concerned I, I, and support their emotions. I have found a way to set a boundary that's rather convenient and nice is to reflect with the small muscles in your face, both your appreciation, like reflect what the feeling is they're having and your concern for it. You can do all that with your face and that's a boundary. That's a boundary. It's you're not saying I've caught your feeling. It's, it's signaling an appreciation. And those signals get into our brain on a deep level. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's part of social intelligence, understanding how to influence, understanding what other people are feeling and influencing them. You can do, you can use social intelligence techniques with your tone of voice, with your body language, including face language, and with the content of what you say. And so that, all of those reinforce the message that you're trying to send to the other person to persuade them, to influence them. Now, one of the things that you want to be thinking about, so one of the cognitive biases that's really important here is called the empathy gap. So the empathy gap, where we tend to greatly underestimate the importance of emotions in motivating other people and motivating ourselves. Mm. So that's the empathy mm. gap, underestimating other people's emotions and our own emotions. So it's pretty notorious nice. that there, was, there, was, uh, there are really interesting studies done, including on ourselves. So when we think, and that's called the hot-cold empathy gap between us in a cold state and us in a hot state. So for example, 
when mm-hmm. people are asked about various kinky sexual things that they're willing to do. When they're in a cold state, they're much less willing to do some kinky sexual activities than when they're in a hot aroused state. <laughs> and that applies to all sorts of dangerous, risky, dramatic, escalating activities that people are much more willing to do in a hot state than they would predict that they're willing to do when they are in a cold, calm state. So that's something to really recognize that our future selves can't be trusted if we are aroused. We need to put up barriers to prevent our future self if we put ourselves in an aroused state from acting in ways that we'll later regret. That is really interesting. It also makes me think about why people escalate into strange behaviors in a a heated crowd. The crowd kind of brings on the hot state. Very interesting. It does. It does. does. And that's kind of social proof. So one of these dynamics is social proof. If other people around us are acting in a certain way, that demonstrates to us from a tribal herd mentality Right, that's one of the one of the cognitive biases is the bandwagon effect, where we jump on the bandwagon of what other people around us are doing, and if they are acting in a way that we might find weird, if we weren't part of the crowd, mm-hmm. when we're in the crowd, and when we feel ourselves to be part of that tribe, we will tend to act in that way unless we deliberately pull out, and that's pretty hard to do. Interesting. So what I want to do is I want to spend the next five minutes going through a little more of the cognitive biases, then we have a little break. And then I want to talk about the workplace, and then we'll take calls. So let's just kind of go through some of the more common cognitive biases. And, and one you and I talked about last time I talked to you was just the positive negative bias, which I think is having massive effect these days. Uh, I'm a I think you we both agreed we're sort of positively biased. Your yeah, wife is negatively biased. Dr. Fauci is negatively biased. Yeah, there, there's all these sort of negative, the people that are still wearing masks and still freaking out have mm-hmm. negative bias. Uh, how do we, How do we? is there a bridge to be had between the positive and negative bias? And then tell us a couple of the more common, other common biases. Of course. So the optimistic, pessimistic bias, right? So people who are more positively inclined toward the world, who think the grass is green on the other side of the hill, that's people like you and I, who have more of a view of the world of full of opportunities. My wife and other people like that see the world as see the grass as yellow on the other side of the hill, and the world is full <laughs> of threats. We need to empathize with people like that, and they need to empathize with us. But the thing is, honestly, optimism is a better life strategy. It's not something that's just what the research shows. So people with an optimism bias tend to be healthier. They tend to be mentally and physically healthier. They tend to be more creative. They tend to be more entrepreneurial. People with a pessimism bias, unfortunately, tend to have more depression. They tend to be less physically healthy. They tend to be more in control function. So Dr. Fauci is definitely in a control function. So you'll find many more lawyers and accountants in who have pessimism bias. So the optimism bias is people do tend to thrive more with the optimism bias. So we need to understand that. And we can certainly build bridges to people who have a pessimism bias by understanding their emotions. So coming from... Uh, optimistic perspective. You need to understand that people with a pessimism bias view the world through a prism of anxiety. And anxiety, Mm -hmm. why do they do that? They see the world as full of threat that causes anxiety. And if there's too much threat, too much problems, it causes depression. So we need to understand that they're coming from a place of anxiety. So what we want to do 
is take steps to relieve their anxiety. That means, first of all, acknowledging them, acknowledging, telling them that, hey, I totally understand that you feel that this is dangerous, this is worrisome. Tell me about your anxiety. Tell me about what you're worried about. Well, and that's very rare for people with a pessimism bias who know that they're dealing with an optimist. That is incredibly rare for them to hear. And that's very relieving. When I talk to my wife or other mm. people with a pessimism bias, and I tell them, tell me what you're worried about. Tell me what uh, makes you feel anxious about the situation. Then they feel much less threatened because what they're worried about mm. is people like us kind of shooting from the hip and just going out and saying, everything is hunky-dory. Oh, you know, I, no never, I never realized that it was the, I, I, I didn't realize it was the optimist causing the pessimist anxiety. That's just that information yeah. is interesting because I don't want to do that yeah, to people. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. They are. Oh, we are. Oh, we that do. explains Absolutely. a lot. Yeah, we they feel that we are crazy <laughs> and that we shoot from the hip and that we uh, are completely oblivious. Oh boy. It's like, it's like, oh, oh COVID my. is completely over. We don't have an average of 100,000 cases or whatever it is, 97, last I checked this morning, yeah. cases per, per yeah, week. Yeah. I mean, it's still there, right? Obviously. And we oh, have yeah. Omicron. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, and it's, it's nasty. Or, yeah, it's nasty, it's but nasty. I want to get on my life. You you know? a, <laughs> like, yeah, you had COVID yourself, and that caused you some serious problems. I remember that. Exactly. Twice. Yeah, twice. Twice, twice. exactly. It's, it's so that's the problem, right? Yeah. So yeah. we need to realize that they have fears about what we will do. And if we listen to them, if we talk to them and say, what are your fears? What causes your anxiety? Mm. That will help them really understand and appreciate that, hey, we are more on their side. So sort of a, a little bit mm. borrowing some of the e-grip techniques and talking about, okay, how can we relieve your anxieties? You know, sometimes we optimists don't realize what makes pessimists anxious. And if we realize that, hey, this, these are the things that make pessimists anxious, then maybe well, if, we if it's us, if it's these. the optimist, I, I had no, I had no idea. So that's already a major insight for me. Right. So then we can figure out. Okay, these are the kind yeah. of worries. You know, they, these pessimists think that. Okay, these are the kinds of worries they have about what we'll do. So maybe we can tell them. Yeah. Okay, let's. I will make sure to not do these things, and then we can come to a win-win compromise in a situation yeah. where pessimists would be otherwise just completely shutting the situation down and saying, no, no don't have these yeah. parties, don't get on with your life. Like, you can compromise, right. you can figure out what makes them anxious. So that's kind of one of the big dynamics that you want to be thinking about. And else you'll find many people in your life. If you are an optimist, you'll find that a num number of reasons for your conflicts with people is that many of them are pessimists. If you're a pessimist, you'll find mm -hmm. that some of your conflicts, a bunch of them come from optimists that you feel are shooting from the hip. And there's common misunderstandings. Mm. So those are definitely important. Another, well, probably the most famous cognitive bias folks have heard of is the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information mm. that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. So that's a common one. One of the ones that I think people might have heard about less is called the fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution. That's what so I was going to bring. I was going to bring up that next. It, and it is, in a, yeah, I've, I've noticed it's sort of, I, I'm not even I feel like it's morphed a little bit. I, I remember, I know what you're going to tell us about the fundamental attribution error, and I would like you to do so. But I feel like it's just changed to an attribution error. People just assume what's going on in the contents of people's minds all the time. You, you know what I mean? That once they it's on social media and everywhere else, it's that's an evil person, that's a Nazi, that's a communist, that's whatever. And these attributions are being way more 
bantered about than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Right, because it's easy to make attributions on social media, right? So the fundamental attribution yeah. error, that's technical scientific name, if you look that up for individuals, where we know the contents of our mind. And so when we do something that might be controversial, we know that we're doing it for a good reason. You know, we're the good guys, right? We have a good story about ourselves, about why we're doing it. When we see somebody else doing something, you know, like look, cutting off stuff in the car or making a controversial statement on social media or doing something in the workplace that we think is dumb, then we attribute hostile intentions to them because we think that, well, yeah. how can they do that? You know, they, they must be crazy. That are, so what's going on in their internal world? We attribute yeah. their actions due to their internal personality and something that's wrong with them as individuals. Because why would they be acting like this otherwise? We are not, we don't have a glimpse into their world. Now, if we actually, we have extensive research showing that if you sit people down with one another, people across the political aisle, across various ideologies, religion, whatever, and when you have them talk to each other and they talk, share about their life experiences and why they came to develop the values that they do, then you can bridge a lot of the divides. So that bridges mm -hmm. a lot of divides when people come to understand each other's experiences and each other's thought processes, where they came from. And that brings down hostilities immensely. But in social media, of course, that's not what happens. You know, before social media, we used to know the people we interacted with much more personally. You know, you go to a dinner mm -hmm. party, you have some background mm -hmm. with the people, of course, your neighbors, your friends, and so on. On social media, you have much less insight into the background of, those, of other people with whom you interact. So we tend to attribute more hostile intentions and actions and thought processes to these people. So this fundamental attribution error, that's for individuals. Ultimate attribution error is when we attribute these characteristics to larger groups. So groups, you know, everyone who identifies as a communist or anyone who identifies as someone on the alt right or whatever it is. We would tend to attribute yeah. negative characteristics to that whole group, even though well, it, it's, they it's, might not it, be Yeah, I, I'd never heard of the ultimate attribution error, but as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I'm, I'm almost hearing these days attribution attribution errors. <laughs> In other words, what, <laughs> it's not just that they're attributing, they're going, oh, another one of these, and you're just another one. And it's like, it's yep. like now you're, now it's, it's second order attribution error. Not only are you yep. attributing, yep. you know, content to that person's mind, you're also, you're also saying something about the world and the group to which they belong to. It's another one. Yep. It's, and, and it's That's like, no, no, no. And, and and that kind of thinking gets very close to delusion. I'm sorry to tell you, it, it becomes a, a paranoid delusional. Do one, do one one more step, and you're delusional. Everybody's a fascist. <laughs> Everybody's a communist. Now now you're there. <laughs> you know, our mom's a yep. you know mom's plotting against me. Okay, now we're now we're into delusion. There we go. That's weird. It's weird yes. that we've we, that's been a weird thing these days. All right. Well, listen. Let me let me take a break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, workplace and uh, your hybrid workplace recommendations, how to manage it, and then we'll take calls. All right. All right. Be Sounds right great. back after this. I think we have found the holy grail of skincare. Genucel has absolutely changed certainly my skincare regimen. I like that vitamin C serum, the under eye creams, skin nourishing primer. Susan loves the eyelash enhancers, uses it on her eyebrows as well. 
GenuCell has everything to make us both feel and look amazing. Best part, the quality of the products. Using pure ingredients like antioxidants, copper peptides, and a proprietary calendula flower base, GenuCell knows how to formulate products to perfection without irritation. For Susan Sheets, that annoying dry area under nose during allergy season, like right here, she tried everything, but no matter what, the skin is flaky and dry. Nothing seemed to help until she started using GenuCell's Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer. Soaked right into the skin. She was hooked after one use and now loves all of their products as well. Every single product is developed by a pharmacist, making sure that all the ingredients are safe and effective. Right now, you can try GenuCell's most popular collection of products and see what I'm talking about for yourself. Go to GenuCell.com and enter code DREW for 10% off. That is G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com, and the code is D-R-E-W. And welcome back. Appreciate you all being here. Uh, the, and those of you that have tried the GenuCell products, please let us know what you think of it. Contact at drdrew.com. And if you have any trouble reaching them, again, contact. Uh, we just we feel very very happy to be able to support their products. They're excellent. Caleb, you still using everything and your wife using everything to satisfaction? Oh, yes, absolutely. I just used it before the show today. In fact, let's What's see, that? where am I? You can probably I see that the, my the, skin is looking pretty amazing. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, look at it's Caleb. Well, smooth I'm, and, and it's, yeah, this is, you this use is the red out stuff editing that, podcast that late at night. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's doing great. No, uh, I did. I, so part of the reason I wanted to come on screen uh -oh. is because he had made a really interesting point, uh, earlier about the, uh, people optimists and how optimists and pessimists see each other. I just disconnected myself from my ears. Sorry about that. Uh -oh. Kicked up no. the wire and the whole thing fell apart. The, Dr. Sibirsky, he had made a very interesting point yes. whenever you had realized that how optimists and pessimists see each other. And it made me realize that my wife is a huge optimist and I, I mm. try to be an optimist, but that's just not my natural state. Yeah. And the that's truth is I often actually mm -hmm. feel like that the only way that optimists like my wife survive are because they're a pessimist like me who are constantly watching mm -hmm. out for all of these dangerous and constant threats. Well, and well so hold on. So, 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 so stop, Caleb. It's funny. And, you, yeah. <laughs> you know? it, it's funny. You, it's funny. You would say that when, when Dr. Zabersky first described this bias to me, he said, well, he goes, the optimist had to go out of the cave and go kill the mammoth. We had to get the meat and you had to be kind of optimistic for that guy to go out there and go hunting. But somebody needed to stay back with the with the kids and survive yeah. and yeah. Stay, exactly. keep the fire going. <laughs> and so, I, yeah, so there I you go. And if you think about Caleb, if you think about your role, you are in the controlling role. You are in the producer. You are making sure that there are no screw ups, right? So right. the control roles are perfect for people who are more pessimistic. Like I said, accountants, controllers, quality personnel. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a perfect role for you. That's great. That that's that's where you're needed. So thank you for doing what you do. Well, well thank, <laughs> thank you very you much. Your, yeah, thank you for your diligence <laughs> for my service. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh my goodness! All right. So well, speaking of workplace, let's talk about hybrid workplace. Uh, Elon Musk has uh, made some headlines lately for firing people that, that criticized him and telling everybody to get back to work and go to a pretend company where you can continue to pretend to work, I think is what he said, which is pretty funny. Yes. But uh, what, what do you say about this uh, new hybrid environment? Yeah, so what Elon Musk said is that remote workers are only pretending to work and phoning it in. And therefore, everyone has to come to work because it's important for everyone to be there and to be visible. And what? so he's basically claiming that remote workers are not productive. 
when you look at the research on productivity, it's very clear that remote workers are more productive than in-person workers, of course, for those who can do the, their work remote. It's hard remote. to imagine. No, it's not actually hard, hard to imagine. To imagine. Yeah. Uh, well, think about it. When What happens with remote work? You don't have to do the commute. So you save yourself mm. over an hour per day. Of, you know, and especially if you are, let's say, in New York City, you save yourself over two hours per day and more, perhaps more. Mm. So that is mm. something that remote workers, and that, what is a commute? It's unpaid labor. You'll have to do it to come to work. It's unpaid labor. So remote workers are working about half of the time of that commute. They are working. They spend that time mm. working. So they don't start, they don't work from nine to five. They work from 8.30 to 5.30. That's what typically happens with remote workers. They work longer days. We saw, on average, the transition in May, in March 2020 that workers, remote workers worked about 20 hours more per month. That's one. Second, they are more focused when they work. They have more unbroken stretches of time when they can focus on their tasks, and therefore, they don't, they're not interrupted by coworkers, and so they are more productive because they're more focused. So overall, there was extensive research showing this from Harvard Business School, Society for Human Resources Services, Stanford University, showing that remote workers are more productive. And specifically, there was some recent research coming out from Stanford that showed that compared to May 2020, what the remote workers in May 2020 were about 5% more productive than comparable in-office workers. By May 2022, they were about 9% more productive. So almost twice as much mm. higher productivity. Why is that? Well, because people learned how to work remotely better. And using some of the techniques in my book, I'll talk about that later, how about the, some of the techniques that they use. But people know how to work together better remotely. So Elon Musk is flatly, simply wrong. And I'm highly confident that Tesla engineers, software programmers, the people who he's claiming don't work, pretending to work, are more productive at home just because everyone is on average more productive at home. And of course, some people with you know, kids and so on, distractions are less productive at home. But on average, people are quite a bit more productive at home. Now, that's one. Mm. Second, what is he saying? He's saying that you need to come to work because I don't trust you. I don't trust you to work. You're mm. only pretending to work. You're phoning it in. Now, what kind of a message is that? When you don't trust people, you're telling people, I don't trust you. I want to micromanage you. You need to be visible, and I need to be looking over your shoulder at every minute. <laughs> that is not a way to run a company. When you look at what makes people productive, people who are not you know, the workers on the shop floor, of course, who need to be there, but people who are knowledge workers, the people who can work remotely, the software programmers at Tesla, the research and development people at Tesla, they are made effective and productive and innovative due to a combination of autonomy and flexibility. So autonomy and mm. flexibility are strongly correlated with both innovation and productivity. People like to have autonomy over their work when they're working with their mind, when they're knowledge workers. They want to be autonomous, meaning where, how, and when they work. When you give them those things, they produce more ideas and they produce more output, more effort. So that is a big, big problem. Lack of trust, showing lack of trust is poison for a good culture. Now, not giving people autonomy is poison for innovation and creativity. So what will happen? The people who are more innovative and more creative can easily find jobs elsewhere. And we know that Amazon and other companies that are offering the much more flexibility 
are actually specifically recruiting Tesla workers right now using what Elon Musk is saying. And they will leave. And who will come to work? The people who are more conformist. Let's just be honest about that. Who are more conformist mm. and who are less able to find a job elsewhere. So these are the people who mm. will be remaining at Tesla. <laughs> the people who are least mm -hmm. able to find a job elsewhere. The people who are most conformist. Now, is that really aligned with Tesla's spirit? I mean, Tesla is making its money because it's innovative. It's innovation. It's the innovation is at the center of Tesla. But you'll have many less innovative people working at Tesla mm. because they will be gone. And that's a phenomenon called evaporative cooling, where a certain type of people are leaving a place, they're <laughs> evaporating from a place, and you have more of a concentration, like of something, of a, a sol something becoming more salty because water is evaporating. You'll have more of a concentration of more conformist people who are working at Tesla. And that's not great for Tesla. And I know that there are a number of other companies, including high-tech manufacturers like Tesla, who are working for offering flexibility. So one of my clients is a high-tech manufacturing company called Applied Materials. And they gave me a testimonial, so I'm happy to talk about them. So Applied Materials is a Fortune 200 company that works in the semiconductor manufacturing industry. And so, again, high-tech manufacturing. People from Tesla can easily go and find uh, work there. Again, high-tech manufacturing, similar environment. And that company provides them with a lot more flexibility. It provides, including fully remote work for people who can work fully remotely, or various flexible hybrid options from one day a week to you know, a couple of days a week, whatever, depending on your team, depending on the kind of role that you are. So applied materials is one example. Another example is Freem, which is obviously, folks know uh, hopefully what Freem is, huge, I think it's a Fortune 50 company, so a huge company, it has a trust-based culture. So trust-based culture, meaning they trust you to work from wherever you are, wherever you are, as long as you accomplish your work. These are two high-tech manufacturing companies where people from Tesla can easily go to work. And we're not only talking about tech companies like Amazon. So there are a number of high-tech manufacturing companies that offer a flexible trust-based culture. Now, why is Elon Musk pursuing this? He's falling into a cognitive bias called the illusion of control. So the illusion of control. That's a cognitive bias that's often that's often characterizes people who are more authoritarian, more authoritarian leaders who want to have control over their environment. He directly says this in his email to employees saying, you must be visible. I must be able to see you. Control. He wants control. Mm. He wants that power. And that illusion of control speaks to the fact that we don't really have nearly as much control over our world, over our teams, as we feel we do. In fact, extensive research shows that office workers, on average, work only about 36 to 39% of the time. 36 to 39% of the time is how much people work. When they're in the office, that is not great. So for people who want the illusion of control, like Musk, who found that illusion of control, the rest of the time people spend, do things like chit-chatting with worker, fellow workers about non-work topics, checking social media, shopping on Amazon, and even looking for other jobs, which I can guarantee to you, a number of Tesla workers who are coming in right now are doing at this very moment. Well, but but I I, I don't disagree with anything you've said. It's, you can't disagree with it. It's just that those are the facts. But I worry that 
two things get lost in in the hybrid situation and it's almost like i feel like we need to define the kinds of jobs that are done best or better at least in these different models in other words you are not practicing medicine alone you're going in period mm -hmm. end of story you know you can't be a healthcare provider and not go in it's just it just doesn't even make sense and the more sort of collaborative and interactive you are with your peers, the better the care, the more your knowledge base is enhanced. And I'm guessing there are other scientific endeavors in particular, say in a collective laboratory of biotech environment, or maybe in certain engineering environments, where it's really important to be constantly interacting with your peers. And there may be ways to do it you know, in, with some of those professions where you're primarily looking at a screen, you know, like engineering or something, but not in a biotech. When you're in a lab, you know, yelling across the, the mm -hmm. bench to each other, that has to be in, in the bench and, and inside and in, in the, and now maybe you can go home and crunch the numbers, but you're probably doing that anyway uh, already. So I, I kind of, and I worry that you're going to lose the community social cohesion of a workplace. Mm -hmm. You're not going to feel a part of something. So what about those two issues, mm. type of job sure. and social community cohesion? Yeah. Let's talk about the exact job you talked about. Uh, and one of my clients is called the JAP Center for Health Research. You can look it up. It's a center for health research. It's a biotech center. And it moved to a home-centric model, meaning it's not even hybrid model. People most overwhelmingly work at home. They only come in for meetings and for some research that they can't do at home. But a lot of the current bio research can be done from home because it's using data science, using models. So the large majority of it actually can be done from home. And when you think about people in biotech, they tend to be more introverted. They tend to be more number crunchers and they really like working from home. They're very comfortable and they are very successful. So they moved the JAP Center for Health Research moved to a home centric model. And they're finding that they have a lot more productivity, a lot more innovative ideas and they're getting more funding, they're getting more research done, they're overall way better off with a home-centric model. So we're not even talking about a hybrid model. And that just works well for them. When, when they did an internal <laughs> survey on what employees wanted, and we did an internal survey, all 84% wanted fully remote work. <laughs> so this is what employees wanted, and this is, what's, is what drives retention. Now, another one of my clients is called the Information Sciences Institute at the University of uh, Southern California, uh, California, again, all of these gave me testimonials, which is why I'm talking about them. That's a 400 staff research institute where there's a focus on data, so it's engineering, data science of various, mm -hmm. of various forms, engineering of various forms, IT science, all of this sort of stuff. And a lot of them work fully remotely. They are very comfortable working fully remotely and a bunch of them but, come but, in but on a hybrid schedule. I, 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 I get it, but I feel like you're defining a particular job, which is IT and, and data, which doesn't surprise right. me. So, Better from so, home. Yeah, right. that, so that, so there is there is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. So I'm talking and about so there must be. And, I'm and sure there there must be. Yeah, there must be other jobs. My point of being other jobs that are not suitable for that or not as good for it. Or we got to sort of be more yeah, we're, more we're, specific we're, to the job. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, we're only talking hey, about. Listen, uh, we're, we're, about fifty percent of all jobs in the United States are able to be done fully remotely from home. And that's the jobs that we're talking about. Right. We're not talking about the job where you have to come in. Now, there, right. for the other part of your question about community, 
It's very important to do that. And there are effective techniques to build that. So there is a reason that there's 9% higher productivity now rather than 5%. And one of the techniques that I talk about mm. a lot is called virtual co-working. What that means, it replaces the in-person co-working you do. What that means is that everyone mm -hmm. gets together on a video conference call for an hour or two per day, and you work on your individual right. tasks. So you don't work together with other people. It's not about collaboration. You work on your individual tasks. But right. when you have a question, you ask that. You So you get on a video conference call, you turn off your microphone, you leave on your speakers, and you video optional. If you have a question, you ask uh, that question, somebody turns on their microphone, they answer that question, there might be some team problem solving, some screen sharing that goes on, and then you end the meeting. That's a great technique for on-the-job training of junior people who you, that's mm. been one of the problems for people during the pandemic and they don't know how to do that. That's a great technique, on-the-job training, because on-the-job training is essentially just quickly answering people's questions in the moment. Then it's a great technique for team bonding. You all work together, you problem solve together, you build that community, you feel that sense of togetherness, and that's great. And it's great for junior staff getting mentoring from more senior staff, because that's a great environment for them to do that. So that solves a lot mm. of problems around that sense of community, around on-the-job training, around getting mentoring, and that sort of support. I have a question. All right, let's uh, switch to... Yeah, Caleb, but I would just, before, while you're asking your question, I would just tell people, uh, if you're in the chat room in the tweet spaces, raise your hand. I saw Timothy, you were, had your hand up and then you put it down. Um, and I, I get notified that you're wanting to ask a question. If I, if you do so, I will pull you up to the podium. And when I do, you'll be uh, streaming out on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Rumble, Facebook, everywhere. We can push it, we push it. So just push, you know, request it. And uh, also remember, when I do pull you up to the podium, to unmute your microphone, which is in the lower left-hand corner of your TweetSpaces screen. Caleb, go ahead. Uh, do you think that workers should be paid more if they're working from home because they're not, the company isn't having to pay for office space and all the materials and equipment and upkeep. Like it's reducing the company's costs. Should the employees be paid more or should they be paid the same or less because they're getting more freedom or how does that balance out? You know, what I have my clients do is pay for their home office. So their home office use. So if they need to get laptops, microphones, cameras, if they need to get some privacy screens, all of that, that is what they do because they're not paying for that same space that they would in the office and all of the equipment that they do. So yes, paying for their home office mm -hmm. is very appropriate and it's very smart for companies because obviously when you pay for the home office of your employees, that increases their productivity and their comfort and their innovation, their work-life balance, their physical and mental health, you know, ergonomic chairs, mm -hmm. all of that sort of stuff, standing desks. Yep. So that's a great question, Caleb, and that's what you should do. So he wants us to... Sorry, I didn't buy your equipment for you, Caleb. Is that where we're going? No, you did. Actually, you did. <laughs> oh, did I? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. good. All right, the, uh, the, And it uh, worked? The streaming you, you and Susan PC, working this all mixer, out. everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. That's that's all That's all, uh, Susan, so, so thank her. Yeah, thanks, Susan. Uh, you guys, uh, just, just so we're all clear, it's been Caleb and Susan, the brains behind this whole thing. I was just sitting at home being frustrated, and they thought they both, well, first Caleb suggested it, and then Susan went along, and... Uh, and then I went along, and so thus we've continued doing this to this day. All right, let's bring up some uh, people to the front here to speak. Uh, Josh, go ahead. 
Oh, hey, Dr. Drew. Hey. Sorry. You know, uh, on the um, Twitter spaces versus the clubhouse, there's a pretty bad delay, but um, mm. that's the only that's the only notice. That's the only difference I noticed between the two setups. Okay. Um, I, I didn't hear you call on me. I just all of a sudden looked down and said, your mic is muted, which meant I was on the stage. So interesting, anyway. interesting. But um, yeah, so there's a little delay on, on Twitter spaces versus Clubhouse. Okay. Um, so my question is on projection. And um, I wanted to know how we know when we're projecting, because if we can catch ourselves doing it, it seems to present a lot of knowledge of the self, of our own self. That's a great question. In, relation, in relationship to another person yes. where we would have no no knowledge otherwise. It's kind of like a cognitive distortion. Mm-hmm. It's ki- kind of like a cognitive. It's definitely cognitive, but it's also psychological, like mm-hmm. you were talking about cluster B. Mm-hmm. It's also part of these cluster B personality disorders. Mm-hmm. And um, I also wanted to say, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but in racism and sexism, we... It looks like we might be projecting onto the out group, and we may not know that we're doing it at all. And I just wanted right. to know if you guys had any comment on that. Okay, thanks, Josh. I'll put you on hold here. Um, I, I would even say I feel very strongly uh, about what Josh brought up here um, mm. in that it, it's there's layers to it. And not only is it exactly what he's talking about, this projection, it has psychological basis, and you have to bring it into consciousness. But there's also... I don't know if this bias has a name, but this is the one I've been personally working on very hard, and and I'm just mm. stunned at all the layers to it, which is just sort of uh, ignorance. <laughs> there's, there's things mm. that were that other people know vividly about their experience as Americans that I, as a privileged white person, just wasn't aware of, mm. and that's the that's the mm. biggest complaint I'm hearing from people, and so that's why I made it a very serious effort, and just the scales fall from my eyes on a regular basis. Things even very dear patient of mine sent me a book about uh, a Jim Crow in Southern California. And I, she's a dear friend, known her literally since I was in high school and taking care of her. She's a much older woman now. And uh, I said, Jim Crow in Southern California, what are you talking about? She goes, here's the book, read it. And again, poofs, multiple scales fall from my eyes. Mm. Like I had no idea. I feel so ignorant. I feel so dumb, but uh, I'm used to it now. It happens all the time. So there's projection and then there's ignorance. Is, is, are those cognitive distortions? Uh, are there strategies for dealing with sure. both? So one of them, there's a really important cognitive bias called the false consensus effect where what mm. we believe to be true, we also believe that other people who are like us in some ways believe to be true, who are close to us. So for example, your patient, it's intuitive for you to believe that you have the same beliefs, values, perceptions that people you like, like your patient, that you have the same perspectives and that you have the same life experiences. And we don't stop and think that other people might have different life experiences. So we have this false consensus Mm -hmm. effect, the idea that other people share our worldview, values, perspectives. So that's something to really watch out for. And the way to Mm. watch out for that is to really try to think about where that person is coming from with their life experience and what might have caused them to not share our life experience. It's essentially the old thing that your mom might have told you about putting yourself in another person's shoes while remembering that in their shoes, you would have very different values. If you were brought up like they did, if you grew up in the South under Jim Crow, which a number of people people who are Black have grown up, who are, of course, of the older generation, have grown up in that sort of environment, then the kind of concerns and perspectives you would have 
are very different. And it's important to respect that and see that the life experience of other people shapes their perspectives and their beliefs. And that's very valuable to work on. And that helps address mm -hmm. that projection, knowing that all of us fall into that false consensus effect constantly. It's just who we are. It's an inherent part of what we do. Then you will have much more reason to ask other people about their experiences, about asking them, how do you feel about this topic? So again, going circling back to that e-group from the beginning, emotions, goals, rapport, information, positive reinforcement. You will focus on their emotions. You will try to understand how they feel about a topic. And that will help you get out of that false consensus effect because like, oh, you feel differently about this topic than I do. Let me try to understand how you feel. Oh, you have different goals about this. Well, let me see what goals we share and what goals we don't. So when you understand those things, their emotions and their goals, then you will have a much deeper appreciation of where they're coming from. And that will help you address that false consensus effect. And that the but, but he also but uh, another but but Josh also asked a, a very provocative question, which is, how do you know when you're projecting? How do you raise your awareness of that? I, I don't know that anyone on their own can do it. You have to have somebody else reflect back to you, and you have to be willing to well, listen to that I'm reflection, saying. don't you? Yeah. Well, that's okay. what I'm saying. So you want to ask somebody okay. about what they feel and what their goals okay. are. Okay, got it, got it. Right. Got that's, it. That's, that's the key. I see, I see what you're saying. I, I'm sorry, I missed... The, let me, let me be explicit. You, 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 it's dumb people like me miss the step you put in there. It's like you, you have to be willing to address your your uh, projections, be open to the possibility that you're projecting, and test reality by asking people what they're actually. You have to assume that you're Got projection. It. You're right. You have to assume Got that it. you're projecting Got it. Got it. because that's just how Got we are as human beings. So again, you have to assume that you're projecting, and then you ask other people about how they feel and what their goals are, what they want to achieve, and then you. <laughs> this abuse of yourself of your projections and that false concept hopefully or at least at least reduce the amount of projection evan what, ivan what's going on okay um just a thought i mean and i'm not here to disrespect but a few seconds ago you kind of referred to yourself as a, a privileged white man and i know it's based on history but i think just that statement alone already puts you and other white people above others. And I just think it's about changing the narrative to be more inclusive of, of all cultures, all, all, all uh, generations and, and, and walks of life. So I don't know if that lands, but it's just something that sort of came to me. is a bit jarring. Well, so, so, saying, so, 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 so you're in Australia? I am, mate, yep. Okay, so that is, I, I, I'm happy to adjust my language. I, I'm trying to, you know, just get along. And and I think that's how most people. I I would either be referred to as dumb or ignorant, <laughs> which is sort of the other way to do this, or or just say hey, I have had a life experience that just you know just made me not as aware of things that I should have been aware of. That's all, which is privilege, right? Well, yeah. You, you, I mean, the fact that you are a leader in your field is is a privilege because you've worked towards yeah. that. But yeah, that's, yeah. That's better. I'm just referring to equality and how we'd move the things along. And just look, it's just a brain fart idea, thought that I wanted to bring up. How, I I'm, all, I'm all for thoughts. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I dig it. What, what do you think? Sure. What should I say? Uh, look, it's just, out of context, it's hard to answer that question, but I think we just need to refer to situations in a way that is more inclusive, that's all. But back to what you guys were talking about earlier about workplace, and I've only just jumped on, so I'm just, I might, might be sort of tripping over myself a little bit, but... I run a number of companies here in Australia and in, in different uh, industries, and 
I think um, the most important thing is culture and and be, and how we mm-hmm. value people. Giving someone a pay rise and making them feel stupid or not uh, or, or undermining them through our actions is counterproductive. I find that if we can have our teams, whether they're working remotely or in the office, it's about how they feel valued and 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 through our mm-hmm. actions as leaders or, or owners of a business. Like I've had a few people that have worked remotely for me for for we joke about we were practicing for COVID before COVID was a thing, meaning that I had a number of people work remotely or overseas and they they, they work beautifully. And it's just when you hit your stride, there's a smile on the phone or in in person. And I think that to me is the new norm and, and, and it's something that I think is really important to build a really good company culture. I, I talked to another yeah. consultant today who is fearful that, or concerned, I'm fearful too strong a word, a concern that people want to experience their whole being in the workplace rather than their work being in the workplace. You know what I mean? It, it, I don't know if you have any opinion about that, Ivan, but it, it's, you know, it's one thing to support people and their, their work and who they are and what they do and show them value and piece of the culture and, you know, collaborate with them. But is it important to have your total self experience in the workplace? You know what I'm saying? Does, uh, yeah. He, I, yeah. I ahead. think personally it's about, understanding the human the individual sometimes people want all in in the office or home like i've had both and I've, and the bulk of our, our workforce is a hybrid mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of bigger organizations have to have structure and you've got departments and can cancel each other out mm-hmm. or governance that is really toxic and there's hr that complicates fucking everything mm-hmm. if we simplify things into modules and see what individual what works for the individual best if they're delivering in spades and fucking game on. Here, here. I think that that's <laughs> a very important on. insight. That's a right. very important insight yeah. that you want to customize to the person. You want to respect the person. And here, this goes directly against what Elon Musk is saying, which is not trusting people, <laughs> which is saying they pretend to work and that they're phoning it in. That is the very opposite of what Ivan is saying. And I think that's very important. Ivan is saying is thank you, Ivan. Pre- on- appreciate you being here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, man. Cheers, man. Cheers. Uh, all right. Uh, I think that about. I'm looking at what people are up to here. If anybody else is interested in walking up to the podium, so, we are uh, about Dr. the end of the program here. Sibirsky. Go ahead. So yes, sir. How how do you? Yeah. So one of the reasons why I feel like this my remote work situation. I'm in Alabama. Drew and Susan they're over in California and I'm producing everything remotely. And one of the reasons why I feel like that works so well is because they've built in ways to incentivize me so that the more that I work, then I have opportunities to actually get boosters Mm -hmm. and commissions and things by working with sponsors Mm -hmm. and all of that. So how can other companies build that in so that it's like I'm motivated to, I can spend time, I can take, you know, half a day off, spend time with my baby and my wife and all that. It's really what, it's really a great, it's a, it's a, it's I, I I like that you're bringing this up because I feel like this is sort of, sort of one of the new. It's really it's bringing you as an entrepreneur on board by giving you skin in the game. Uh, and right, so talk exactly. about that, club. Skin in the game, I think, is a very important part of collaborating and building a work environment. Right. So one of the things that I do for my clients is make sure there's an effective performance evaluation system for people who can work remotely, and that if they are not performing remotely, then they're asked to come to the office. And so the reward Mm. itself is the ability to work remotely. 
because people generally want to have more flexibility, more autonomy. Now, if for some reason they're not performing effectively remotely, and then it may be a good time for them to come into the office, maybe they're too distracted, scatterbrained to work effectively remotely. And so that in itself is a very good reward system, I find. And it causes people to be motivated to work as effectively remotely as they can because they want to keep that privilege. In fact, if you look at surveys, being working remotely is the number one privilege that people want right now. It's more mm. important than oh, things like healthcare. So oh, that, that that's is interesting. I had no idea. People, I had no people idea. Prefer, so, yeah, so, people prefer remote work over the healthcare as a more important privilege. And they will choose a company wild. that offers more flexibility than more healthcare. Wow. And is this all chronicled in the book? Yes. Yep. Leading hybrid remote teams again, talks about all of that. Go ahead and flash it up there and, again, Caleb, while I bring in one more speaker here. It's PK. Uh, where is his you book? You can find that, that on Amazon elsewhere. Leading hybrid remote teams, physical and digital. Okay. Uh, and PK, you have to unmute your mic in the lower left-hand corner of your uh, uh, tweet spaces screen, and then you can talk to us. There you are. Hello, everyone. Hey there. Hello, everyone. Yeah, I just joined the space very late. You guys are already running up. I want to quickly ask this question. Um, if one wants to secure any remote job, what are the steps? And where can one search for those remote jobs? Thank you. Okay, I'm not sure I, I caught the question that you were saying. Thank are you, there strategies for you? I asked about, yeah, strategies for securing remote jobs. So what you want to That's do what I think for securing yes, yes. remote job, yeah. yes, is making sure that you yeah. can demonstrate that you can work well remotely. And that means showing that you have initiative and showing that you have productivity. And so that, one of the things that we find about people, so with my clients, when, when I, we evaluate who works well remotely, it's people who take initiative, not people who are just passive and just do what their boss tells them. Those are the people who will come to work at Tesla, <laughs> the more conformist people. Mm. You want to show that you take right. initiative, that you are creative, and that you can be responsible for working in working well remotely. And those are the things that you want to demonstrate. And there are a number of ways of demonstrating these things. But that's the crucial thing, that you're a problem solver, that you take initiative, when you notice problems, you go ahead and solve them, that you are willing to work harder than you would in the office for the privilege of working remotely. And so treating that like a privilege and being a self-motivated self-starter who takes initiative and shows creativity and entrepreneurialism, those are the things that will get companies to hire you as a remote worker. Gleb, as always, it's a privilege to speak with you. I, I just uh, every time learn something and it uh, helps refine my understanding of the human experience. Uh, I'm happy to share my positive bias with you. And uh, I'm glad we're both of that. We don't, so we don't have to yes. do any bridging of those by that particular bias. Um, I, I, I think as it turns to my bias in the workplace, you know, again, you know, your own experience might uh, color how you feel about working from home. Mm -hmm. I feel like workplace environments are very um, um, activating and, and inspiring. And I, I personally, I would want a lot, you know, I'd want to be in the workplace and I would feel bad about people that weren't there that, you know, that wanted to stay at home that I wish were part of the collaboration in real time and in, in, in a, 
you know, in person, in flesh environment. But again, we all have these biases and we all have these uh, preferences, and uh, that's what makes a ball game, right? We we figure we find <laughs> places we want to work that that suit our biases and and our and our preferences. Uh, and and the fact that I, I think the really important thing that people should take if they have strong feelings about this one way or another, the one thing they should take away is there's not there's not a good way and a bad way to solve this problem. There are there are good ways to do both. Uh, and that people clearly want both. And I had no idea how, what a priority it was for people, which to me is, again, another eye-opening thing, which is that you know, we, we have, to, if that's more important than healthcare, we, we need to provide that yeah. for people if that's really that important to them. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it works out. And, and, and it will change how we build. Yeah, go ahead. I want to disagree with you. There are bad ways of solving it, and Elon Musk is solving it in a bad way. <laughs> Not trusting well, I, people. Maybe, and, but again, yeah. but even, but think about it. If we if we empathize with him, he has sort of Aspergers, mm -hmm. and he yeah. and that's the kind of that is his style, and he's been very successful with that sure. style. And um, I I personally would probably respond to that kind of a leadership. I would you know I'd, I'd dig in, and you know that's just me, right? And a lot of people would bristle against it and hate it, and they shouldn't yep. be there. And and so he's he is what do you call it? He's, he's saltifying. He's he's evaporating. He's he's creating too much so, salt. Yeah, evaporative <laughs> cooling. So, evaporative. evaporative, evaporative. Cooling, right? So people. So he's yep, evaporative exactly. cooling. So people, yeah. Right. People who'll be left at uh, Tesla will be more conformist and less innovative and creative. Right. And, and so that will definitely maybe that's what he wants. Maybe or maybe yeah exactly or maybe he'll have a separate workforce for the creative side at home I I don't know I, that, that's up to him but but I I don't I don't I always like uh, I always worry about thinking about these things in terms of good and bad there may be better and best there may be, you know maybe better ways to do it that I get that um, but you know people you know we're all so very I don't want to say different because we're all kind of the same too but we, it, it's it's a to, to think about each of our our experiences and good or bad, I, I think it just sort of limits the human experience a little bit. It's just we're, we're just sort of different, and, and there may be better ways to do it. You may want to rethink what you're doing, but uh, maybe you can adjust course along the way. You'll learn something, and you'll do something much, much better. Who knows? I don't know. I think that, right? that, that's right. You'll adjust course. I mean, I think generally telling people that you don't trust them is not going to work for the vast majority of people. So, <laughs> you know, I think we yeah. can agree on that. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Gleb Sabursky, again, thank you as always for joining me and spending time with me. Well, you can wonderful. find some more of Gleb's uh, podcast with me. There are at least two other ones, uh, drdrew.com, if you look for him at the Dr. Drew podcast. And uh, we'll bring you back uh, one of these, your next, <laughs> certainly there'll be another book and we'll get you back for that. But probably before then too, we'll get you into sort of, uh, answer questions and we'll kind of i would love to do a more comprehensive um cognitive distortion talk one day where we just do, sure, you know do the map wonderful. of cognitive distortions that'd be very interesting oh, yeah, i i once saw a i once saw a table of cognitive distortions and i was i was really surprised how many there actually are and uh, we should be yeah, kind of aware of them so all right Gleb, thank thank you so much appreciate you being here thank you so much drew i appreciate you inviting me you got it. That's Dr. Gleb Sabursky. Uh, you saw the book. You saw the website. Uh, again, it, whoop, disaster. Wait, put that up there again, Caleb. Disaster website. There it is. Disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Hmm? Caleb? That's right. Yeah. Disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Yeah. yeah. 
there you go. All right. Well, anyway, thank you all for being here today. We'll be back on Monday next week. We're going to do a little different schedule next week. It's going to be Monday at 3 and Tuesday at 2. And then uh, Susan and I have to make our way to Austin for a little after dark uh, visit. That's going to be an interesting uh, experience, as always. I miss those guys. And uh, as you know, they're busily working away. They're in Austin doing their thing. And we love joining them. And we will be there. Um, so look forward to that. That's a Dr. Drew After Dark. If you guys are fans of that show, we, we uh, appreciate your support. Let me just look at the restream before I sign off here. Yeah, thank you, Jeans. Bye, Hitler. Uh, you guys are touching a lot of things through the fence. Um, all right. I think... Uh, that is that. And we, uh, again, appreciate y'all being here. And we will see you on Monday, 3 o'clock Pacific time. See you then. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Susan. And we'll see you then. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me. Call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 